I became a Christian when I was 16, which did not go down well at home. Things were fine on the outside and seemed stable, but I could never wrap my head around my relationship with my dad. He didn't really express fatherly love and we grew distant as I grew older. I could never please him. I'd bring home school reports and he'd comment on everything I hadn't done well and never congratulate me when I did. This really affected my relationship with God. Like, I knew he loved me, but God loves everyone, right? I was always distant from a personal relationship with him. A few years later, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. And being the man that he was, he denied it. I wrote him a letter thanking him and telling him how much I loved him. I gave it to him, but he didn't read it for weeks, months even, because he thought it had upset him. And sadly, he died without reading it. I felt so worthless. There was so much pain and grief. With some friends, I brought it to God who helped me to forgive him. One day, through a vision, God showed me some snapshot images of a young dad gazing over a cot in love with his daughter, then a daughter taking her first steps towards her father. In that moment, I knew God loved me deliberately and personally. I'm speaking to you today from the center of a city that loves freedom. And freedom is a great thing, isn't it? Who doesn't love freedom? There are many different beliefs in a city like ours, but one of the most prevalent beliefs is that belief in the freedom to do what we want to do, be who we want to be, love who we want to love, and just generally live the way we want to live. And that's, that's, all, that's all well and good. But if we are free in those external things, in the day-to-day -day decisions that we have, in, in the self-expression, in the relationships that we have, if we're free in those things, but not free in the under-the-surface things, not free from hurt and guilt and shame, then we still have a problem. And this is the exact problem that the Israelites from the story of the Exodus that we're looking at in this series, this is the exact problem that they have. We've picked up the story this week where they finally, after 430 years, they're finally free from slavery and they walk out of Egypt. But what we're about to see in the passage that we're going to hear from today is that although they were out of Egypt, Egypt wasn't out of them. And actually what they needed was another deliverance from God, a dramatic encounter with God in order to set them truly free from the inside out to bring the transformation that they needed. And so we're going to listen now to the passage of what happened to them from Exodus 13 and 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-hahiroth in front of Baal-zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, 
and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So we're going through this book of Exodus because it gives us, it shows us how God changes his people. Each episode in the story demonstrates something of the gospel, the way in which Jesus brings transformation to the lives of people like you and me. But I recognize that when we read passages like the one that we've just heard, That for some of you, particularly if you're kind of new to Christianity or you're looking in at it, I can understand that this is a little bit problematic here. Because I'm I'm saying to you, you know, you need to believe that Jesus can bring about change in your life. But the way I'm doing that is pointing to this story. And frankly, to, to come to this story, I think, actually, it's quite unbelievable. Surely this is just, you know, it's a nice story for the Sunday school. But this is fairy story stuff, isn't it, really? You know, a huge body of water being moved out of the way and, you know, people walking through a sea. Like, we can't really believe this. How can I believe this? And therefore, how can I believe that Jesus can really change me? So let me address that a little bit before I move forward in the message today. The first thing to say is the authors of the Bible, including this uh, book of Exodus, They're not presenting it to you as a fairy story. They want you to take it seriously. The way it's written is not, you know, once upon a time in a land far away. Actually, no, it's presented as historical events that happened. It's 3,000 years ago in a place called Pi Hahiroth near Baal Zephon. It's saying this is what happened and this is where it happened. So it's wanting you to take it seriously. It's not just a mystical book with mystical, mythical truth that you can just pull from it. No, it's presenting as real things that really happened in life. The second thing to say is that, yes, in the Bible there are supernatural things, but of course, to accept, if you're opening up yourself up to the fact that God exists, then if God exists, then the supernatural does exist. And those two things logically follow on from each other. But even in saying that, that doesn't mean that we have this sort of scientific natural world over here and then just kind of randomly God kind of intervenes every so often and does something spectacular. No, actually, the biblical worldview is not like that. That's completely inconsistent. No, there is a consistency to it. Actually, the way that the the Bible presents God engaging with the natural world is he is involved in all of it. And some of the things that are described, like events like this that we think are remarkable, are supernatural, are miraculous even. God's involved in them. But the Bible also said that God's involved in everything, that the world itself turns because God is the cause behind all those things. And the Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. It means actually you have breath in your lungs because God is sustaining you and giving life to you even now. So the, Bible, the sort of biblical worldview, way of thinking about these things is God is involved in, in all of these things. And we have science and we have natural laws because God has put them there. And God reserves the right to do that and also do things that are not according to those natural laws that we observe as well. But he is doing and involved in both of those. 
And so we don't have the scientific over here and the spiritual or supernatural over here. No, the, the Bible puts those two things together. And even we see that in this passage. Yes, this is a remarkable thing that happens, but it doesn't say, and then God waved his magic wand and the sea went up. Actually, it talks about God involving the natural processes, that there's a huge wind that comes and pushes the water, which is something that's not even unheard of from a scientific point of view, that powerful wind can cause huge bodies of water to move. I say all that to say, yes, there are supernatural things in the Bible. It's sort of grounded in that Jesus rose from the dead. But to accept these things and to engage with these things, there is still logical consistency with them. And you don't have to, you know, put your brain in the bin before you come into a church. And you don't have to uh, abandon a scientific understanding of the world in order to believe in the God of the Bible. No, God works through all these things and he can work in your heart as well. Let's move on then to consider the events of this passage Maybe even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you may have come across this. This kind of story, the crossing of the Red Sea, is one that has made its way into popular culture. But one of the things I think that potentially we don't really focus on when we think about this story is exactly how the Israelites themselves, what they were thinking, what they were feeling. And actually it's quite interesting to see their reaction and what is going on with them. Let's remind ourselves that they have just come out of slavery. 430 years, this people have been enslaved. And finally, they have freedom. But then they immediately hit an obstacle. They've got the Red Sea before them. And they've got their enemies, the Egyptians, closing in on them. Now, this, they're kind of backed into a corner here. And in a society like ours where we value freedom, freedom is the best thing ever. We would guard freedom with our lives. We think, well, we might expect that what they're going to do is make a great last stand. This is kind of their brave heart moment. I'm not going to do the impression for you on that one. You can do it at home. That's fine. But, you know, we're going to stand for our freedom. We're going to fight. The Bible even said they're dressed for battle. Are they going to fight? That's not, not what they do. Strangely, they say, uh, you know, let's just go back to Egypt. Things were all right there. You know, maybe, maybe I'll get my old job back. It wasn't too bad, was it? Yeah, the, the beatings and the, the harsh labor and the, and the slavery. Yeah, okay, but it wasn't. Should we just go back? This doesn't make any sense to us. Why would they go, want to go back to Egypt at the first sign of trouble? As surprising as it is, I think it does reveal something to us about human behavior. You know, what kind of person chooses slavery over freedom? I think the answer to that is it's someone who still thinks of themselves as a slave. They have a slave mindset. Now, this moving from slavery to freedom, as I've said, is one of the great themes of the gospel. What Jesus has come into the world to bring about in our lives. Freedom from the slavery of sin. In Romans chapter 6, it talks about how that the whole world, all of society, is not just, they not just get things wrong sometimes, but actually the human race is enslaved to sin. 
and in every society that you look at around the world and through history, there are people maybe that are trying to do good things and trying to get, you know, get on and progress and that sort of thing. But sooner or later, we see underneath the surface, there is a sort of corrupting influence. Sooner or later, the brokenness of people starts to cause problems in society and we just can't free ourselves from it. Sooner or later, people's selfishness, wickedness, dishonesty, jealousy becomes a problem. And that is the story of the world and it's the story of our lives as well. Maybe we want to be good people and we try and do good things, but we know we just get, keep getting drawn back. We can't free ourselves from our selfishness or jealousy, dishonesty, wickedness, those things that I've been saying. It's the story of us as well. But the Bible has good news for us. Good news that Jesus has come into the world. God himself has come into the world, come to this broken humanity in order to rescue, to forgive, to heal and bring freedom from that slavery to sin. That is the good news of what Jesus has come to bring about. And by putting our faith in Jesus, we can have that. We can have that freedom. We are free. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. One of the first things, I'm free. I'm free in Jesus. It's a wonderful good news of what Jesus has done. But what sometimes happens, I think to some extent happens in all of our lives, is we have that freedom from Jesus, but... We also experience, because, well, we still live in a broken world that is full of sin, and because we still have a temptation even in us to sin, sometimes even though Jesus has set us free, we can still feel enslaved. And even like the Israelites in this story, they're set free, but they can even have a slave mindset. You know, to sort of put a picture on it, it's like a sort of, you know, old, one of those old-fashioned bird cages and you see the, the bird inside. But the door has been flung open. There's freedom there. What happens? The bird flies out, but maybe the bird just stays in there. There's an open cage, but the bird is still caged. They're still living in the sort of cage mindset. Or a prison break. The prisoners all locked away, but then there's a prison break. All the doors are open. Jesus has come. He's brought freedom. We can run and we can go. We can live in the freedom that Jesus won for us. But imagine a prisoner that just stays in his cell. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not sure. For whatever reason, they're going to stay and stay acting like a prisoner, even though they're free. And this is something that can and does happen to many Christians. They get stuck in a place and st I feel, still feel enslaved. There's still habits in my life I just can't break free from. There's still things I think about myself. It's just, I'm just a disappointment. I'm just not good enough. Other people, they seem to be operating in this freedom that Jesus has, but I'm just not there. I'm just still stuck in my sin. I just can't move forward. What's going on there? In Galatians 5 verse 1, it speaks to this issue directly it says for freedom Christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery and even the very fact that that verse is in the Bible suggests that a Christian someone who has been set free by Jesus can actually still live as a slave it's saying don't do that no live in the freedom 
So how do we live in the freedom rather than live just still feeling like we're slave to sin, slave to the law, to the standard, we're not good enough? Well, that's a big question. And I think there are, there are many ways that you could answer it, many things that you could focus on. But for the time that we've got today, I want to focus on one reason very specifically because we see it in the passage. And that is shame. Sometimes we get stuck in the Christian life and we can't break free from this slavery, even though we know Jesus has saved us, is because of the shame that we experience. And the Israelites on this side of the Red Sea, they were free from the chains of slavery, but they were covered in shame and that stopped them moving forward with God. What is, what is shame? Well, often it's characterized with, say, guilt. Guilt that we feel is to do with the things that we've done wrong. But shame, on the other hand, is to do with how we feel about ourselves, how it's connected to who we are as people. And it can be caused by something specific. Maybe we do have a sort of repetitive habit of sin that we feel ashamed about. Or maybe even something has happened to us. Someone's committed sin against us and it causes us to feel ashamed about who we are. It could be something specific like that, but it also could be something just more generally about us just not matching up to the expectations. We just feel ashamed about who we are. Maybe as men or as women, we just think there's a standard that I'm just not meeting. And I just, I just feel I'm not good enough. I'm not matching up. And the shame that we feel is like those insecurities about ourselves. We fear that they're going to be exposed. And our biggest fear is that they would be shown to other people and that other people would just like point and laugh. And say, wow, there could be many reasons. Maybe I'll just list some to help diagnose this a little bit. The potential sources of shame. Maybe it's to do with financial. We can feel financial shame because of the little that we feel that we earn. And we, what we fear is people, what, you, you only earn that much? That's all you get? could be education. Maybe we feel shamed about ourselves. And our fear is people would say, what? You've not been to university. Oh, you, you couldn't get in. Okay. You feel ashamed. Maybe it's physical strength. We just, we feel, we feel weak. You can't even lift this. We just feel insecure about that. We feel ashamed. Or our physical appearance. We fear someone would say, oh, that's as, that's as good as you could look. That's how you're going to present yourself to the world. Maybe it's to do with knowledge or we just feel like fools. You, you don't even, you don't know that. Everyone knows that. That's what we fear people would say if they really knew what we were like. Could be any other thing. Parenting, for example. What, your kids? Your kids can't sit still and listen for five minutes. What kind of parent are you? These insecurity, we just feel ashamed. We, do, we feel there's a standard. We feel other people reach it, but that we don't. And so we feel ashamed. That is what shame is like. And I think that's exactly what the Israelites are facing right now. Now, how do I know that? It doesn't say that specifically. No, it doesn't. But it does say that they were in fear. An obstacle came their way and immediately they're fearful about themselves. 
And this, they feel, feel like failures, but they're fearful that they're going to be exposed. They're going to be found out. And that's why they're tempted to go back to Egypt, because even though it's hard, it's familiar to go forward with God. Well, it's going to be exposing. We're going to be found out our weakness is going to be shown if we try and move forward and run away, run into freedom. Now, let's, let's, they have this shameful kind of slave mindset, even though God has set them free. So how do they really get free? If we feel ashamed, we feel one day we're going to be exposed, we're going to get found out, we're fearful of it. We live in shame, we live in fear. How do we get free from that? And of course, there are always, there's two ways. There's, there's ways that we hear of in, in the world that maybe encourages us to sort of move beyond our shame by just, you know, just try not to worry about it too much or, you know, you're really a, a nice person or just kind of suppress those feelings, really. The gospel, the work of Jesus suggests a different way, tells us to come a different way with it and actually a way that actually deals with the source of our shame. And what that is, is not just, well, you're ashamed about yourself, but God loves you anyway, so just kind of cheer up. No, no, that's not it. What the Israelites had to go through and recognize is, recognize that the reasons for their shame were real, but also focus on the almighty power of God to deal with the source of their shame. They couldn't sort it out themselves. They needed to recognize the almighty power of God. And that's exactly what happens. And that's really what the, this episode of the Red Sea is all about. What we see here is that on one side of the Red Sea, the Israelites are fearful. They're ashamed of who they are. But it says on the other side, they believed God. What happens in between? It says this in, in verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. On one side of the Red Sea, the people feared Egypt. On the other side of the Red Sea, they feared God because they had encountered his mighty power. Let's focus in on this right now then. It says that the Israelites, they saw that the Egyptians had been crushed by God. Often in the, in the Bible, water is used to demonstrate the judgment of God. And that's what we see here. God throws his justice and his judgment down on the Egyptians. In fact, God, it says that God wasn't, didn't seem to be, um, it wasn't enough for them, for the Israelites just to escape away from Egypt. No, the Egyptians were the oppressors for generations and generations and God drew them out so that they can be judged, so that they can be, get the justice that they deserve for being horrible enslavers to the Israelites. God's judgment came. God crushed the enemies of the Israelites. This is part of the good news. It doesn't, maybe doesn't sound like good news, a God of judgment. But God's dealing with their enemies. And this is good news for us. Let me explain why. Shame, the shame that we feel 
The shame we feel about ourselves is a response to something that is real. We talked about how we feel in different ways we don't match up to the standard. We feel bad about who we are. We're aware of our sinfulness, our weakness, and our brokenness. And the gospel doesn't minimize that. The gospel says that is real. And the, the Bible presents a God who is a judge over sin. That we have areas in our lives that are where we are sinful and where we fall short and don't make the standard. That is, that is real. And God is a God who is just. The, the Bible's message is not just kind of cheer up. It's going to be all right. No, the, part of the gospel message is we should be ashamed of ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. We should be ashamed of ourselves for what we've done. We know what we do when no one's looking. We know what the ways that we're really broken and weak and, and sinful. God knows it as well. And the Bible's answer to it is not just, oh, just forget about your shame. No, the Bible's answer partly is, yes, we should feel ashamed about the ways we've not met God's standard, let alone other people's standards or our own standards. We have to be real about that. But also, we have to be real about the fact Jesus has come in the almighty power of God to deal with that. Our sin is real but also through Jesus, it really has been dealt with at the cross. And when we're thinking about the almighty power of God, when we're thinking about the judgment of God, it points us to the cross of Jesus Christ, where the judgment of God against sin and shame was taken by Jesus upon the cross. And so when it talks about how the Israelites looked at this amazing event of the Red Sea, for us as Christians, it's to look at the almighty power of God dealing with sin and dealing with the source of our shame at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 2. It talks about that. You who were dead in your trespasses, you really have done things wrong that you should feel ashamed about before God. But God, through Jesus Christ, has made you alive together with him and having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ that deals with sin and it deals with shame. And that's what we need to know. That maybe we feel guilty of our sin. Maybe we feel ashamed of who we are and what we've done. That's real. But Jesus has dealt with it. He's dealt with it at the cross. And because he's dealt with it, we can move forward with him. We are released. He's taken the power of it. He's died a shameful, horrible death to absorb all the shame in our lives upon himself. So that we can be released from it. We can be freed from it. We can journey forward with God and walk in freedom. You see, shame points the finger at us and say, you're not good enough. You don't make the grade. You're guilty. And we feel ashamed. But the power of the gospel in the cross of Jesus Christ is, is not just to try and deflect that. For me, my life, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should feel ashamed about my sin. 
and the things that I've done wrong. But Jesus has dealt with it. Jesus has dealt with it at the cross and therefore I'm free. I don't have to live under that standard anymore. He has died to cancel that standard, that record of debt that stood against us. And it says he disarmed the authorities and the powers. It's kind of like all those pointing fingers that we fear, that someone's going to point the finger at us and say, not good enough. Oh, that's all you can do. He's disarmed all of that. So we are free to say, yeah, yeah, I don't meet that standard. I don't meet that standard. But more importantly, I don't meet God's standard. And yet he has released me from that because Christ has died in my place for my sin and for my shame and for my guilt. Yes, I'm not good enough. But Christ has dealt with all of that. He's dealt with it at the cross. And so the question for us today is, is where, where are we standing like the Israelites, where are we? On which side of the Red Sea? Are we standing on one side, still fearful, still focused on ourselves, still focused on our shamefulness? Or are we standing on the other side, recognizing Christ has come to deal with it? The almighty power of God is on display. And we look to the cross and say, He's dealt with it there. He's dealt for the source of my shame and my sin. He's dealt with it. And now I'm free. I'm free to follow God. I'm free to pursue the destiny in him and free to claim this identity as free in Christ. Which side are you standing on? Look to the cross today. Let's trust in what Jesus has done for us and stand in awe of his almighty power. We're going to respond to that right now and celebrate this almighty power of God expressed in Jesus Christ by a song of worship. Megan and the band are going to lead us into that right now.